0: Exodus 12:50 and we're going to read down to chapter 13 verse 22 Exodus 12:50 to 13:22 The Lord said to Moses, "Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine." Then Moses said to the people, "Remember this day. In which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today in the month of Abib you are going out, and when the Lord brings you out of the land, into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you a land flowing with milk and honey, You shall keep the service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. And on the seventh day, there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you and no leaven shall be seen in all your territory. You shall tell your son in that day. It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt, From the house of slavery, for when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of the animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first open the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. that that the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, in the annotations to the autobiography of John Newton, the famous uh, English pastor and hymn writer Josiah Bull has recorded the account, and it's a famous account now, that he had gone into Newton's study after Newton had died, and over the mantle in the study, over the desk where Newton had written his sermons, Newton had two Bible verses painted on the walls. He had Isaiah forty three four and Deuteronomy fifteen five, and he had those two verses coupled together. and And it was a well known account that Newton had deemed these verses to be the most important verses to him. And if if you were to look at that wall and see Isaiah 43.4 and Deuteronomy 15.5 painted together on the wall, this is what you would read. Newton had them painted the Lord saying this, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, I love you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. You see, of all the things that Newton wanted to remember was that God loved him and had redeemed him out of the bondage he had been in. Newton had himself been, as you know, a slave trader, a blasphemous man, a very wicked man. And what he wanted to remember, what he didn't want to forget, was that the Lord had delivered him from the bondage that he was in to Satan, sin and death. And that's instructive to us because when God brings Israel out of Egypt, He is going to give them these sort of circumstantial um, requirements. He's going to give them these accompanying statements about what sort of things they are to do and prepare for and what that means for them as they are to go out of Egypt. Now, we have already seen one of those circumstantial things, and that was, remember, they were to to go and ask for possessions from their neighbors. God was going to bring them out with his beauty. Remember, he was going to bring them out a beautified people. That obviously is a picture of how... God redeems us and he transforms us and he gives us the beauty of the image and glory of Christ. And yet here, as Moses continues to instruct Israel and Israel has now done everything that the Lord has told them with the Passover, he is giving them further instructions. And what Israel is going to learn is that there are three things God wants them to remember as they are coming out of Egypt. One, he wants them to be consecrated in their deliverance. And then he wants them to know that they will have his presence in his deliverance, in their deliverance. And then he wants them to know that they will be guided in deliverance, consecrated in deliverance. They will have God's presence in deliverance and they will be guided by God in deliverance. Well, note there that as we go into chapter 13, the Lord now turns to Moses and he says, consecrate to me all of the firstborn. Now, it's, it's already become apparent to us as we work through the book of Exodus that the firstborn holds a significant place because remember, God said, Israel is my firstborn. Let my firstborn go. And we have talked about the role of the firstborn. Remember, the firstborn is the heir of all things. In the ancient areas, the firstborn got the inheritance. The firstborn... Was also, and we haven't talked about this, but the firstborn was representative of all the other children in the household. It wasn't that the firstborn was better, it wasn't that the firstborn deserved more. But the same principle that God used, remember, with the first fruits when he wanted, wanted his people to bring the first fruits. Of the harvest as a representation of their thanksgiving to God and to offer back to God a a sacrifice of the grains that he had given him as as a way of saying everything has come from you. It is all yours and we are thanking you for it. The Lord also created this principle of the firstborn being representative of God's ownership over all. Notice. The Lord says to Moses, consecrate to me all of the firstborn, whatever is first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and beast, is mine. Listen to this. One old writer said, a redeemed people become the property of the Redeemer. A redeemed people become the property of the Redeemer. Now, you remember when we come into the New Testament that the Apostle Paul on two occasions in 1 Corinthians is going to say, remember, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and spirit. He is saying you belong to Christ. Christ has purchased you. A redeemed people become the possession of the Redeemer. That's the principle God is saying here that that I have made you a new creation by bringing you out of bondage to Satan, sin, and death through Christ, who, incidentally, you will remember, is the firstborn, right? He is the eternal firstborn. He is the firstborn, Paul says, over all creation. He is also the firstfruits of the resurrection to come out of the tomb. He is the representative of his people and I think we're to understand here this is this is pointing us forward. And it's saying that the real redemption is going to come through the 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 Messiah, the firstborn over all creation, the eternal son, who is the representative of his people, who makes all the people of God sons and daughters by union with him. Think about that. When God redeems you, he redeems you to be his possession But he also redeems you to be his children. You become his firstborn in the firstborn. We've talked about this. You become heir of all things in Christ. Um, You you get all the privileges, all the benefits of those who have been adopted into God's family in the son. That's, That's what this principle is saying here. And God is saying, consecrate to me, all of the firstborn, just as I've delivered you by destroying the firstborn of Egypt, now you are going to consecrate yourselves to me. You're going to consecrate your firstborns to me, and you are going to be a consecrated people. Now, there is a sense in which we are to understand here that God is teaching us that after our redemption, after he saves us, Our great goal in life is to be a devoted people to him. If he has redeemed you, what he wants from you is to be devoted to him, to give yourself wholly to him. A.W. Pink says, Personal devotedness is the first thing which God has a right to look for from his blood-bought people. Personal devotedness is the first thing which God has a right to look for From his blood bought people. Think of it this way. Remember, in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul spends 11 chapters giving us the great doctrines of the gospel, all that Christ has done, all that Christ has accomplished in in the work of redemption, 11 chapters of the greatest theology about what Jesus has done to redeem you. And then the very next thing he says in Romans 12 is I beseech you, therefore, by the mercies of God to present yourselves living sacrifices, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and right and pleasing and acceptable will of God. The Lord is saying the same thing in Exodus 13, one and following that he is saying in Romans 12, one and two. I have redeemed you. Therefore, you are to be devoted and consecrated to me. Now, there is following on that and connected to that the instruction about the feast of the unleavened bread. Now, there are many people. Let me say this tonight. There are many people and they are. I'm going to be as southern as I can. They are dear hearts (laughs) and they love the Lord, but they don't understand all the dietary stuff in the Old Testament. And they think maybe this stuff all carries over and God really wants us to eat unleavened bread and he wants us to carry all these dietary things on. These are ceremonial markers in redemptive history of spiritual things that God is trying to teach his people about themselves and about him. Notice he gives these instructions and notice verse three. The Lord said to the people, remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand, the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. And then there's going to be a seven day feast. This is going to be what we know is the feast of the unleavened bread. And it is going to be a perpetual memorial in old covenant Israel. So in old covenant Israel until the coming of Christ, every generation was to do this to remind them of what the Lord had done for them. Just as they ate the Passover lamb, they were just as Newton had said over his his thing. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. So by entering into this festival, this ceremonial festival, old covenant Israelites were to look back and remember constantly that great act of redemption. And one of the things God wanted them to do as they coupled this with the Passover was to have this seven-day festival in which they ate no leavened bread. Now, we have the blessing of having the new covenant Scriptures explain to us what this means. Turn over to 1 Corinthians 5, if you would. In 1 Corinthians 5, in that same chapter where you know so well that the Apostle Paul says, Christ, our Passover, was, pacifi- was sacrificed for us. Notice in verse 6, just before that verse, uh, the Apostle is dealing with a church that is tolerating sexual immorality within its ranks, and especially this man who is sleeping with his father's wife, with his stepmother. And and Paul is saying, you should be dealing with this. You should not be tolerating this. And instead, they were actually boasting about it. They were laughing about it. They were joking about it. They were making light about it. And notice in 1 Corinthians 5 or 6, Paul says your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump as you are really unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the festival. He's referring to what we're reading about in chapter 13 of Exodus. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. There the apostle has shown us what was the purpose of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It was to remind them that their sin was like leaven that would permeate. And if they allowed it to run rampant, would leaven the whole lump, just like if this church in the New Covenant had tolerated the sexual immorality within their number and would allow it to fester, it would grow, it would spread. And so Paul says we celebrate the feast because Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us because we've been redeemed by him. We celebrate the feast not by doing Old Covenant ceremonial practices, but by, as it were, purging out malice and evil and celebrating it with sincerity and truth. I think there's another sense in which Moses and God through Moses is also reminding Israel of what they are like by nature, that we are thoroughly sinful, that we are like leaven throughout. That if we are left to ourselves, Isaiah says that we would be nothing but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. When Paul tries to capture our depravity in Romans chapter 3 and he ties together all these psalms. He says "Their with their tongue, they speak with the poison of asps. Their throat is an open tomb. They're from the head to the feet. Everything about us is unrighteous. Um, Phil Riken says this God considered them ceremonially unclean, and therefore unacceptable to use for a holy sacrifice. He says the people were also unclean. Now, how do we know this? Because there's this odd section in verses eleven down to verse 16, verse 11 to 16, where God picks up on the redemption of the firstborn. So in between the instruction about the, the festival of the, the unleavened bread, there is God saying, consecrate your firstborn to me. And then it picks up again right after that in verse 11. And God now says, consecrate even the firstborn of your animals, even a donkey. Now, what's the point of that? Well, a donkey was an unclean animal. Uh, Reichen says this. The firstborn donkey still belonged to the Lord. He had to be given over somehow. Now, one option was that the donkey's neck was broken, but the old owner could also redeem the donkey by offering a lamb in its place. To redeem is to buy back through the payment of a price. In this case, the cost of redemption was the sacrifice of a lamb offered as the donkey's substitute. But then notice, right after he talks about a donkey... Notice in verse 13, every firstborn of a donkey, you shall redeem with a lamb. If you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Now notice every firstborn of man among your sons, you shall redeem. Now, what is God saying? God's saying that we are the really unclean thing that the unclean animal that needed to be redeemed pointed to. That by nature, there is none righteous. No, not one. No one does good. No one seeks for God. We are all like an unclean thing, Isaiah says. By nature, all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. God is intimating and reminding Israel, I've already shown you this with the Passover lamb, but now I want you to understand it greater in in the Feast of the Unleavened Bread and in the redemption of the firstborn that you need to be consecrated to me. Listen to this. Reichen finally says, By setting certain things apart as holy to the Lord, the Israelites learned that they too were set apart for God's service. But here in Exodus 13, God places his people in the same category as donkeys. By the way, Joel Osteen's never going to tell you this, but I will. God puts us in the same category as donkeys. Unclean, dumb old donkeys. <laughs> and... This showed them, Reichen said, that they were sinners in need of salvation. In a word, they needed to be redeemed. Otherwise, they would perish as the donkeys did if they were unredeemed. You know, it's good for us to be reminded of that. Because we so seldom hear that in the world. And sadly, many so seldom hear that in the church. That God has loved us and He has delivered us and redeemed us, but there was nothing in us that made us redeemable. We are all unclean. We're all like leavened bread. We're all like the unclean donkey in the old covenant, but God has given us a sacrificial lamb. Isn't that marvelous? How was the donkey redeemed? By the sacrifice of a lamb. Isn't that beautiful? The same thing that we need. The thing that we need, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, in the consecration, I just want you to see this last thing. In the instructions that God has given Israel, there are two places in which he tells them what to do when their children ask them. Um, And notice, I'll just point out verse 14. And when in time to come, your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. You know, every time we come to the Lord's Supper, and when my children were little, they would ask, why why do we do this? We, We say the exact same thing to our children as they were to say to their children. When they ask, why do we sing this? We say the same thing to our children that they were to say to their children. When our children say... What did the minister mean when he proclaimed this gospel truth? We explained to them that God has done this for us, just like they were to do for their children. Charles Spurgeon says this about the importance of this section for the salvation of covenant children. Listen very carefully. Spurgeon says, believe that God will save your children. He doesn't say God will save every child. He said, believe that God will save your children. Do not be content to sow principles in their minds, which may potentially develop after years, but be working on immediate conversion. What a mercy it will be if our children are thoroughly grounded in the doctrine of redemption by Christ. Listen to this. Some talk to children about being good boys and girls and so on. Children need the gospel, the whole gospel, the unadulterated gospel. They ought to have it. And if they are taught of the spirit of God, they are as capable of receiving it as persons of ripe years Teach the little ones that Jesus died, the just for the unjust, to bring us to God. Isn't that marvelous? In these principles of consecration, God is saying, your children are watching. They are listening. And in years to come, you will say to them, this is what the Lord has done for us. You know, it's good. Some parents, they they so try to sanitize things in their home, that they lose an opportunity to say, this is what I was, and this is what the Lord did for me, because they care more about decorum than they care about this. God does not say, make yourself look the best you can in the home for your children. He says, tell them, this is why we do this. This is why Christ did this. This is what God has done for us. Secondly, and very briefly, I want us to consider... Um, God's presence in their deliverance. Now we come to that section between verse 17 and 22 to the Lord telling his people that he is going to go with them uh, when they come out of Egypt. Notice, when Pharaoh let the people people go, God did not lead them by the land of the Philistines, although that was near, for God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around the way of the wilderness toward the sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt, equipped equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. Now listen to this. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And then listen to this, verse 21. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. Now, two things I'd say here. It is the Lord who is leading Israel out. He is bringing them out. His presence is with them. Uh, that's the only reason they're going out is because he's with them. Um in the Christian life, that's everything. Knowing that the Lord is with us is everything. Knowing that he He is going with us. Knowing that he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Knowing that he said, Lo, I will be with you always, even till the end of the age. Is everything for Christian living. Um, and here, very interesting, the Lord is not just giving them a tangible sign that he is with them. And and you have to listen carefully. His presence in their deliverance also means that he is leading them the way that he wants to take them. Um, The normal route that you would have gone coming out of Egypt would have been to the north. God instead takes them to the east and the south. And they don't understand what he's doing. You know, God, God's presence with us doesn't mean that we're going to always understand what he's doing in our lives. I look back at um, those early times after I was first redeemed and the sweet, uh, refreshing times of God's presence and knowing that he was dwelling in me and near me and thinking, this is so great. And then there's those those curveballs that he throws you and the hardships come and the trials and the difficulties and the challenges and and it's all meant for our good the training notice that he did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines because that was near for God said lest the people change their mind when they see war and return to Egypt he knew that they weren't uh, strong enough spiritually he knew that they they didn't understand what they really needed they weren't prepared yet they weren't ready yet and yet God knew exactly what they needed and and going with them, with his presence, he was leading them in a way they wouldn't have gone on their own. That should be a great comfort to us. You know, Simon Peter never wanted the Lord to lead him. He always wanted to go where he wanted. And Jesus even says that to him at the end of the Gospel of John. He says, when you were young, you walked where you wanted, but when you are old, another is going to carry you and stretch out your arms and take you where you're not going to want to go talking about what what death Peter would die by. And yet the Lord would be with his people, and his presence would go with them, and then he would give them this tangible sign as, as they're coming out of Egypt. God is so kind. Notice verse 21. He went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. Imagine this, this miraculous pillar in the wilderness for 40 years. They see this pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. Now the people still, most of them, don't believe. They see it and they don't believe. It is a miraculous manifestation of the presence of God. It is a theophany. Um, I believe in a special way it is a theophany of the Spirit of Christ. It is the Holy Spirit. And he is giving light to his people to guide them in their journey. He is giving them, though, a tangible sense of his abiding presence with them. He's right there when they are going to move forward in the wilderness, going forward. They will move whenever he gets up and moves. And when he comes down, they will stay. The spirit of God is going to be with them every step of the way. And he is going to manifest himself among them. And, you know, we see this, don't we, in the presence of God ultimately coming in Pentecost, when... The Holy Spirit is poured out on the disciples. And what happens? What rests upon each one of them? Little pillars of fire. Isn't that interesting? Little tongues of fire, but they're little pillars of fire, as it were, resting on the true people of God, showing that God's presence is with them, that he is there to lead them and guide them. And and that is the last thing that we're going to see is, that God is guiding his people in deliverance. You know, um, he is protecting them as they make this journey. He is keeping them and he is leading them. Um, It's very interesting. A.W. Pink said the cloud was to guide Israel through their wilderness journey. What a merciful provision this was, an infallible guide Think about this, an infallible guide to conduct them through the trackless dev- desert. In the same manner, the Holy Spirit has been given to Christians to direct their steps along the narrow way which leads to life. Isn't that marvelous? God gives us the spirit to lead us and guide us through his word every step of the way through a trackless wilderness all the way to glory. Um you know, as he guided his people, he was protecting them, right? Um, the cloud was meant to be darkness to the Egyptians. It, w- it was meant to, to, as it were, hide God's people from them, to be a protection to them. In this guidance, God was giving his people everything that they need. He was giving them light. He was going to give them infallible direction. He was going to give them protection. And he gives us all of that in christ by the work of the spirit among us now all of this was written for us and how do we know that i want to just take you to one final place as we close isaiah chapter 4 and in isaiah 4 isaiah is going to set out really for the first time in his prophecy a prophecy of the coming Messiah, the branch of the Lord, the branch of Jesse. And he's talking about Christ's coming and all the benefits. And I want you to notice verse 5. He's talking about the new covenant church and the new covenant people of God. He's talking about what's going to happen when the branch comes. Notice verse 5. Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. Now, that means... That while we don't see a miraculous pillar, we have something better because we have the true spiritual cloud by day and smoke and shining by night in the Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit at work in us, leading us, guiding us, directing us, protecting us, making God's will known to us and leading us on the narrow path that leads to life. Isn't that marvelous? That's how this is fulfilled in your life today and in my life today. Every time we come to the scriptures and the Holy Spirit is opening them and giving us illumination and we're seeing Christ and we're we're going forth to follow him and we're wanting to follow the lamb wherever he goes. God is leading us, as it were, through a a cloudy pillar and a fiery pillar. He's, He's saying, I am with you. I am guiding you. I am leading you. I hope tonight as we consider these things, as we think of our own redemption and as we reflect on John Newton having those words over his mantle, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and that the Lord your God redeemed you. You would remember your redemption, that you would then in turn say, what God wants from me is my consecration What God wants for me is the consecration of my family, my children. He wants their salvation. And what God wants for me is to know that he is present with me in Christ by the Spirit and that he is guiding me in Christ by his word and through his Spirit. God wants you to be encouraged to that end. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do thank you and praise you for these truths. We thank you that they were meant for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. We do pray that you would make us to realize in our Christian experience the spiritual realities of what uh, Israel only really experienced typically in coming out of Egypt. We pray that you would show us the spiritual fulfillment of these things afresh in Christ. We do pray, our God, that you would consecrate us to be a people holy unto you. We pray that you would also make us a people who know your presence with us by the power of your spirit and that we would be a people who know you're guiding and leading us. And so, our Father, would you give us a greater manifestation of your Holy Spirit A greater knowledge that you are with us, that you are leading us and that you are guiding us in the way that we should go. We do pray that you would fix our eyes on Jesus as you do lead us. And we pray these things in his name and for your name's sake. We pray in Jesus name. Amen.